The Supreme Court will decide whether former President Donald Trump is immune from federal prosecution. It's Thursday, February 29th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, officials in several states are waiting for the Biden administration to approve plans to automatically register people to vote when they apply for Medicaid. They may be working and unable to get to the polls. They move more often, so their registration is less likely to stay updated. Also this hour, both President Biden and Donald Trump will be in Texas border towns today to talk about immigration policy. Plus, New Mexico is testing wastewater from public schools for drugs, though state officials acknowledge that the results can be imprecise. It can tell us that a substance is present. It can't tell us who is using it. It can't tell us how many people are using it. Increasing clouds and windy today in the 30s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden and former President Donald Trump will both visit the southern border in Texas today. Their dueling visits reflect the significance of the border issue this year. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on how Democrats hope this will play out. The rare visit by the president reflects a new offensive approach Biden is taking on one of his greatest political liabilities. Evan Roth Smith, a Democratic pollster for the political strategy group Blueprint, says the trip is an opportunity to counter the narrative that Democrats are soft on immigration and attack House Republicans for blocking a bipartisan agreement at Trump's urging that would have tightened rules for asylum and given more money to hire more border agents. The politics of it are fantastic for Democrats, uh, and they're horrible for Republicans, and they're personally difficult for Donald Trump because he's the one who tanked this deal. Biden says Trump torpedoed the deal in order to score political points. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Trump is going to Eagle Pass, Texas to see border conditions today. He is claiming that he is the one who finally got President Biden to visit the border. The White House claims its visit today had been in the making for some time, and Biden has previously been to the border during his presidency. Congressional leaders have finalized one part of a deal to fund the government for the rest of this fiscal year. NPR's Eric McDaniel reports. Government funding is done in 12 parts. Leaders have an agreement on half of them, including bills that fund the Departments of Agriculture, Commerce, and Transportation. They're aiming to pass them by March 8th. That's next Friday. But first, they have to advance another short-term extension, almost certain to require Democratic votes in the House to overcome Republican objections. Another funding deadline on the remaining six bills will be pushed to late March. This is a promising sign. But nothing's final until these bills all come up for a vote and pass both chambers, which, based on things have gone in Washington lately, is far from a given. Still, it appears that the nation's largest employer, the federal government, is likely to be able to keep writing paychecks for now. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, the Capitol. The second largest wildfire in Texas's recorded history continues to burn in the panhandle north of Amarillo. From the Texas newsroom, Rachel Ozier Lindley reports it has burned more than 1,300 square miles and is 3% contained. Tatum Pennington is a lifelong resident of Canadian, where she and her husband have about 300 mother and baby calves. She says the fire left their property in a state of catastrophic destruction. We still can't find most of our cattle, and the ones that we found are barely hanging in. They're very badly burned. And the babies don't know where their moms are, and the moms don't know where their babies are, and it's just the ranch has been completely destroyed. Now, their top priority is taking care of the animals who survived. And then just how we rebuild step by step. It's estimated thousands of cattle will be lost in the fire. I'm Rachel Osier-Lindley in Amarillo. 
You're listening to NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. There's more talk in Boston and on Beacon Hill of bringing congestion pricing to the city's roads. The idea is to slap high tolls on people who drive during peak times. WBUR's Rob Lane reports. Boston City Councilor Tanya Fernandez-Anderson says congestion pricing could address some of the city's problems. Such a policy could reduce traffic increase, the use of public transit, and improve our air quality. That from a council meeting earlier this month. Congressman Jake Auchincloss declined to take a position on the matter during an appearance on WBUR's Radio Boston, but he's concerned that even if local leaders wanted to implement it, the Federal Highway Administration could block congestion pricing on interstate highways like 95 and 93. Massachusetts and Boston should be able to decide that for themselves without the Washington, D.C. telling them the best way to do it. Congestion pricing in New York City is set to go into effect this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The superintendent of Brockton Public Schools is being placed on paid administrative leave. The unanimous vote by the school committee comes as the city investigates a $14 million budget deficit. Superintendent Mike Thomas blames the shortfall on transportation and staffing costs. He went on extended medical leave shortly after the deficit was discovered in August. But Thomas said this week he was ready to return to work to help tackle ongoing disciplinary issues at Brockton High School. The school committee says Thomas will remain on leave until the investigation into the deficit is complete. Mail-in ballots make up 92 percent of early primary votes so far in Massachusetts. The Secretary of State's office says just over 8 percent of Massachusetts voters have cast their ballot for Tuesday's presidential primaries. Early voting runs through tomorrow. Today, students at Boston Preparatory Charter School in Hyde Park will tour historically black colleges and universities right where they are. Two nonprofits are teaming up to bring virtual reality headsets to the school. Roman Johnson is a volunteer with one of those nonprofits, Boston's Black Men of Value, and is an HBCU graduate. Although brilliance is evenly distributed, technology opportunities are not always successful. So this initiative aims to level the playing field for students seeking higher education. Aside from campus tours, students will get to see a performance from Southern University's marching band and learn about fraternities at North Carolina Central University. It's 7.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. The Bruins skate against the Vegas Golden Knights tonight at 7 in Boston, and the Celtics are looking for win number 10 in a row as they face the Dallas Mavericks at home tomorrow night. Game time is 7.30. Clouds move in throughout the day today. It'll be breezy with highs in the mid-30s. Tonight, mostly clear skies and lows in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, we end the week with a sunny day and highs in the mid-40s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. The U.S. Supreme Court gave answers to two questions yesterday. The first is whether they want to hear former President Trump's effort to get out of criminal prosecution. The justices said yes, they would like to hear the arguments. The second question is when to hear them. And on that matter, the justices will take their time. 
waiting almost two months before hearing arguments toward the end of April. I was talking this over with our justice correspondent, Carrie Johnson, in the early hours of this morning, and she said the calendar is the substance in this case, meaning the timing matters a lot because we're in an election year. Let's pick this up now with Kim Whaley, who's a constitutional law schooler at the law scholar. I should let's try that one more time. A constitutional law scholar at the University of Baltimore. <laughs> Kim, do you ever have trouble saying this? <laughs> this early in the morning, yes. <laughs> okay, all right. Anyway, she's at the University of Baltimore and a regular guest here. Uh, let's work through these questions. The former president says he has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for his acts as president, even his efforts to overturn the 2020 election, which is the case at issue here. Did the justices have to hear this case at all? No, the justices could have just relied on the very well-reasoned opinion by a three-panel judge, uh, panel judges in the D.C. Circuit, which uh, which held, you know, essentially crimes in office are still crimes. This is an unprecedented issue. They could have let that lie, understanding that hopefully uh, what happened in January 6th would not be repeated. So this isn't this kind of thing that's going to plague future presidents. If future presidents just sort of stay within the boundaries of the law in Article 2, we won't be in this crisis again and just let it lie. Which is what they do with a lot of appeals. They just say we have nothing to say here. And yet, this is a matter of great public import, of public concern. There are millions of people who believe differently about this issue. Is there a case to be made that the court should weigh in for that reason? There's a case to be made that maybe we, because uh, this kind of immunity has never been done before, criminal immunity, there's civil immunity for presidents, but there's never been an occasion for criminal immunity. There's a case to be made for for just kind of outlining some of the boundaries of that again for future presidents. Uh, To me, the stronger case to be made is that in this moment, the American people needs to know between now and November, whether uh, Donald Trump um, committed felonies uh, uh, with proof beyond a reasonable doubt by juries of his peers. And voters in um, Iowa indicated, even Republicans, that would matter to them when they go to the ballot box and they're potentially denying the American people that sort of gold standard type fact finding on a very important issue that implicates democracy itself. So I think the balancing here uh, to sort of you know, just tinker with the standard is is less important than to allow the trial to go bo- bo- uh, go forward. But it looks like maybe that's not how the court is thinking about this. I guess we should work through the timeline here. It's been more than a couple of weeks since the ruling the court has decided they're going to hear. Almost two months until the arguments. Some period after that with a ruling. And we don't really know what the ruling is going to be. This could take several more months, couldn't it? Sure. So if we get a ruling in in June, um, it's conceivable the trial could go go over the summer and still get a verdict before November. But as you say, it depends on the scope of the ruling. If they uh, put a bunch of tests in there to determine what's within the outer boundaries of official acts, then Donald Trump's lawyers rightfully will go back not just to the um, January 6th case, but to the Mar-a-Lago case where he's also claimed immunity and try to carve up the case and ask the judge to sort of less, you know, make it narrower. That takes time. so it's getting more and more likely that this will push past November. And if Donald Trump gets in office, not only will he um, fire Jack Smith, uh, change the Department of Justice leadership, uh, cancel all these cases. But if, if we take him at his word, he might actually use the Department of Justice um, to in- initiate revenge investigations and prosecutions. And that's where really I, I wonder sometimes if the justices have the big picture in mind. Uh, could all of this timeline have been completely different? Could this not all have been done years ago? Sure, I'm, Merrick Garland could have stepped up, you know, early on, uh, and Attorney General, uh, yeah. yeah, the Attorney General, and and 
gone sort of at the top. The facts really haven't changed between January 6th and today. He waited for a long time to appoint Jack Smith. And then when Jack Smith was in office, he moved very, very quickly. Uh, so all of this could have been done with it comfortably within the four years of the, the Biden presidency without pushing it to the to the brink. And that's where we are. So I think, Steve, there are a lot of people that, um, frankly, are to blame here. And it's the American people, I think, that are suffering and, and anxious and understandably anxious that um, that this all could just just not be resolved on the facts and the law and the truth, but instead be resolved on strategy because the strength of mm -hmm. his cl claims is very, very weak, Donald Trump, Kim on immunity. Whale Kim Whaley is a constitutional law scholar at the University of Baltimore, and I said it right that time. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Many eligible Americans who aren't registered to vote are enrolled in Medicaid. Several states propose automatically registering them when they apply for public health insurance. Advocates say it could help close a voter registration gap for citizens with lower incomes. But as NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports, the Biden administration has not given it the green light. In Oregon, citizens enrolled in Medicaid make up about 85 percent of the state's eligible voters who are not yet registered. Right now, we are so close to having, you know, nearly everyone. Molly Woon is Oregon's elections director. These are folks that, for some reason, haven't had an engagement with the Department of Motor Vehicles and aren't getting an ID or license or driver's permit. That's where many states have been automatically signing up eligible voters. Seven states, plus Washington, D.C., are now trying to expand automatic voter registration to their Medicaid offices. For decades, the National Voter Registration Act, also known as the NVRA, has required state Medicaid agencies to give out voter registration forms and hand-completed ones over to state election officials. But many advocates say automatic registration could make many Medicaid applicants' lives easier. I think it's time to sort of admit that the way we've been doing NVRA compliance is not working anymore. Sam Alica-Friedland heads the Institute for Responsive Government. What it boils down to is the government is just not using the information that they're collecting as efficiently as possible. The information that state Medicaid offices collect about an eligible voter, Alica-Friedland says, should be transferred automatically to state election officials. It's a way of streamlining voter registration that could solve a long-standing problem with U.S. democracy, according to Jamila Michener, who teaches public policy at Cornell University. We think about the ballot as somewhat of an equalizer. You might have a million dollars and I might have one dollar to my name, but we can both show up and vote. The problem is that that's not what happens in practice. Michener's research suggests that Medicaid enrollees are significantly less likely to be registered and vote than people who are not enrolled. They may be working and unable to get to the polls. They move more often, so their registration is less likely to stay updated. And that means U.S. democracy is not representative of many lower-income citizens and citizens with disabilities who are enrolled in Medicaid. They, in many ways, are more vulnerable to policy. They're more affected by what happens, but their voices aren't shaping what happens. Mitchner says automatic voter registration efforts in the past have gotten more voices heard at the ballot box. But it's also drawn opposition from some Republicans. Although Michener points out it's not clear how automatically registering more eligible voters will affect elections. If you don't want increased political participation by low-income people because you don't know what that might mean for the votes that you get or the votes that members of your party get, you really may not be interested in this. Advocates of automatic voter registration through Medicaid say this is a kind of program that President Biden's administration should support, especially after Biden's 2021 executive order directing federal agencies like the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to promote access to voting. We're ready to go. 
But state election officials like Oregon's Molly Wound say state Medicaid offices are still waiting on a go-ahead from Biden officials. Once they are told, yes, you can do this, then we're ready to start working with them to get it done. Biden officials have cited concerns about the confidentiality of Medicaid applicants' information. A sticking point is when eligible voters can opt out of being registered. But state officials say there's a way to work that out while enabling hundreds of thousands of citizens to vote. Anzi Luang, NPR News. It's February 29th. That's the extra day we get in February every four years. We've asked readers of the UpFirst newsletter and NPR.org how they'll be spending this leap day. My name is Jason Bond. I am a leap year baby. I will be turning 11 years old this year. Sounds older than 11, and it turns out he was born in 1980. Mr. Bond is on a cruise to the Bahamas today with others born on a leap day. He did the same thing on the last February 29th, which was in 2020. There were 78 Leap Day babies, ranging from Rowan, who was turning one, who would have been four years old, to Grandma Jan. She was turning 19. And he says that trip was especially memorable because it came at the leading edge of the COVID pandemic. We got back home, and two weeks later, the world shut down. And it was really comforting to have that group of people that we had met on the cruise. It was almost kind of a second family. Now, for another listener, today marks the beginning of her second family. My name's Catherine Yeager, and for leap year, my fiancé and I are taking the leap. We had our first date on the last leap year, so four years later, we decided it was the perfect day to step into marriage. Yeager was widowed in her 40s and says she has a second chance at love with fiancé Garrett Smith. Life's very short. Every four years, we get a bonus day. We made the most of the bonus day four years ago, and we'll do it again this time. PJ and Cindy Gaynard are also taking the plunge. We got married on February 29th, 2004, and every four years on February 29th, we get married again in some unique, fun, interesting way. So our first wedding, we got married at a planetarium. Second wedding, Vegas with Elvis. And then third, Malibu Beach. Wow! Today they're reenacting the 1986 <laughs> movie Pretty in Pink. It's Cindy's favorite film, except for the end when, spoiler alert, Andy picks Blaine over her best friend Ducky. Cindy and PJ are going to put on their own twist to that story. We're going to stop the movie early and then get married as Andy and Ducky. Yes, as it should be. We're writing a cinematic wrong. There you go. Now, listener Rachel Knott is planning to relive recent history. I will be having a party with my friends where we go back in time four years. They'll dress like it's 2020 and watch movies from that year. For not, it also holds deeper meaning after the pandemic. I look back at young little Rachel and she's just so different now. Aren't we all? This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBOR. We're following news this morning that the health ministry in Gaza now says the death toll there has surpassed 30,000 people killed since the current war began, including many women and children. Also, Republican Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky says he'll step down as Senate Minority Leader. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump are making dueling appearances today at the U.S. southern border in Texas. Biden is expected to meet with Border Patrol officials while Trump makes a speech about an increase in illegal crossings. It's 719. WBUR supporters include Music Worcester presenting Orchestre Metropolitain de Montréal, led by Yannick Nézé-Séguin, Mechanics Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. 
Tickets at musicworcester.org. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Increasing clouds today and windy will have highs only in the mid-30s. Tonight it falls to the mid-20s and skies will be mostly clear. Tomorrow high temperatures rise to the mid-40s and it'll be sunny. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with 90.9 WBUR. We're exploring the legacy of Mitch McConnell and sharing leap day plans, plus why the Biden administration plans to be seems to be becoming more intolerant of Israel's war, but only behind closed doors. Keep listening. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. From Schwab with Schwab investing themes like artificial intelligence, renewable energy, or pet passion. Over 40 themes to choose from. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. When your name is Taylor, especially in showbiz, the best you could hope for is second place. It's honestly uh, a burden to have that first name. That is comedian Taylor Tomlinson. She's come to terms with never being a Swifties' favorite Taylor, but she is surging in the rankings. Tomlinson's got a new stand-up special on Netflix called Have It All. Nobody wants anybody to have it all. When I was a kid, I didn't think you could have it all. When I was a kid, I thought you either got to be hot or have a good personality. I thought that's how people were divided. I thought life was fair. And that got me through a lot of ugly years as a child where I'm like, it's okay that I'm not more symmetrical because I have this great, awesome personality that will surely reveal itself any day now. (laughs) It's coming with my period and my Hogwarts letter. I can feel it. And Taylor Tomlinson is the newest late-night TV host. Her CBS show, After Midnight, comes on after Stephen Colbert. She's not behind a desk, though. It's less like Colbert and more like Alex Trebek. It's really a show showcasing comedians, which is what I love so much about it. But it's not a real game show. I mean, it's structured like a game show, but it's not. The whole thing's a bit. It's a fake game show. Today's hashtag is hashtag ruin a (laughs) rom-com. I'm going to put 60 seconds on the clock and you'll buzz in with as many jokes as you can that fit tonight's topic. Go. Woolia. Oh, uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall in a hot car. (laughs) (laughs) Britannic. Bridget Jones's diary has some kind of racist stuff in it. (laughs) So no one's winning fabulous prizes or glorious trips or anything like that. No, 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 no. We (laughs) We have a terrible prize every show. We've given away... A broken office chair, we've given away a haunted doll. You know, we've had a lot of fun in the writer's room coming up with with silly (laughs) fake prizes to give people. 
When I see a stand-up in person or on the screen, I always think about how that comic controls everything about that space. But in this case, I mean, it's like you're controlling the room, but you're also controlling a panel and people. How are the two different for you? Oh, it's so different. I mean, I get to laugh more. Like, I'm not laughing at my own stand-up. I might laugh at something somebody says during crowd work, but my show is a lot of me just laughing at other comedians, cracking jokes. Now, in your Netflix special, Have It All, you said at the time you'd been single for a year and you were fine with it. Dating feels like being a stuffed animal in a claw machine. Like, oh my God, it's happening! No, it's not. <laughs> oh my God, here we go. Wow, can't believe I told people. That's embarrassing. Oh, 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 and you're just moving me over to get to something else. I understand, I get that. Taylor, people have been going on dates for like thousands of years. Why do we still suck so bad at it? I mean, that's an impossible question to answer. <laughs> I have no idea. There's so many like dating advice podcasts out there like yeah. and nobody actually knows. Because if you're really good at dating, you're done, right? <laughs> like if you're great at dating, you're either dating all the time, you're like a serial dater, or you are finished and you found the love of your life. I don't know. I think dating apps are really interesting because half the time I'm like, oh, this is like the easiest dating's ever been because you can just hop on and like set up a date so easily. But then also, you know, there's all these articles about how dating apps are actually worse because everybody thinks there's always something better right around the corner and you're just one swipe away and nobody's ever satisfied. So I really couldn't tell you. When I, when I watch your stand-up, it's like you talk about dating like you're a scientist in a lab coat and a clipboard, and, and you're like breaking it down. Like you study it more than you, maybe more than you actually date. <laughs> I think that's true. I think I do study it more than I actually date. I mean, there's a lot of jokes about I have a friend who, because my friends yeah. date more than I do a lot of times. So, yeah, I think I definitely gather a lot of information that then ends up on stage. You know, Taylor, my brother, he just turned 45. He's still single. He tells me all of his dating war stories. Am I a jerk that I don't want him to get married so I can keep hearing those stories? Oh my God, not at all. I talk about that in the special too. I think as a single friend, you have more fun updates. Like whenever I've been in periods of my life where I was dating a lot or friends of mine have, like, oh my gosh, I'm on the phone constantly updating people with whatever dates I had because it's all new. Like my friends who are in relationships for years and years until they get married, they don't have a ton of updates other than like, <laughs> yeah, we're just happy. You know, like if they have updates, it's bad. It like might be ending if they have a lot of updates, you know? Now, okay, I want to play another clip from Have It All because I've given what we're about to hear, Taylor, a lot of thought. If someone has their soulmate, you don't want them to have their dream job, too. If someone has their dream job, they don't get to be in love on top of that. If someone has their dream job and their soulmate, bare minimum, their parents better be divorced. <laughs> I'd prefer they were an orphan. So, Taylor, isn't that what separates us from the animals? We feel better about what we have when we hear about people who don't have what we have. Mm. I mean, I haven't talked to any animals, so I don't know. <laughs> dolphins are very smart, right? Maybe dolphins are comparing each other's, I don't know, swimming speed. I'm not sure. But yeah, no, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of comparison that goes on, especially as you get to a certain certain points in your life where I think as a society, we kind of 
have put these expectations on each other and ourselves to reach these milestones by 30, 40, et cetera. You just turned 30 um, not mm -hmm. that long ago. Was it some magical life marker for you? What everybody told me would happen when I turned 30 did happen, which is that I sort of felt more like myself. And I'm just so grateful to be out of my 20s because my 20s felt so stressful. I think my 20s, I spent like striving to achieve certain things. When I turned 30 and I had this new job and I was filming my third Netflix special, which was so far beyond anything I expected to have by this age, I felt like, you know what? I think I've done everything I set out to do career-wise and then some. So I think that weirdly helped me relax a little bit, which I don't know if that's healthy or not, but it's gotta be. That's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> that's what I've uncovered in therapy. That is Taylor Tomlinson. Just turn on any screen anytime. She'll probably be right there. Uh, Taylor, thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBMOR's Morning Edition, we go to Northern Virginia, where a high school theater department is collaborating with the school's Black Student Union to present student-written plays for Black History Month. It's 729. Listeners have the opportunity to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and the Community Advisory Board. If you'd like information about attending, please visit wbur.org slash open meetings. That's wbur.org slash open meetings. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to building socially responsible investment portfolios that reflect your values and goals. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And the ICA with Of Wales, an immersive extended reality video inspired by Moby Dick. On view now, ICABoston.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The U.S. Supreme Court says it will consider whether former President Donald Trump has immunity from prosecution on charges related to his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. NPR's Carrie Johnson says Trump appealed to the nation's high court after a lower court ruled he was not immune. Trump is fighting four felony charges for allegedly conspiring to defraud the government he once led and depriving millions of Americans of their right to have their votes counted in 2020. Trump has pleaded not guilty. He's also argued these charges are out of bounds because he says he was trying to protect and question the integrity of the election. That's NPR's Kerry Johnson. The case against Trump related to the January 6th insurrection is now on hold. A massive wildfire is ripping through parts of the Texas panhandle, destroying homes and prompting evacuations. Greg Downey says he was visiting friends when he was ordered to leave the area. The wind, I'm guessing they said 70 miles an hour, it seemed to remove the ash from the fire as it went. And we went through, I bet, 30 miles of what I can only describe as, as a lunar landscape, just absolute barren desert. Officials say at least one person in Texas has died as a result of the wildfires. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading lower at this hour. This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
Gabrielle Wallahosian will soon be the newest member of the state Supreme Judicial Court. The governor's council approved her nomination late yesterday by a vote of 6-1. to one. The lone no vote came from council member Tara Jacobs, who said her reservations had nothing to do with the nominee's judicial qualifications. She calls Wallahosian an insider nominee. My perception from that is um, she intellectualizes the marginalized community's struggle um, in a way that it feels very much a bubble of privilege um, and detached from the struggle itself. Some people criticized Governor Healy for picking Wolohosian because the two previously had a long-term romantic relationship. Healy called her the most qualified person for the job. Changes are coming to Boston's Blue Hill Avenue. Mayor Michelle Wu says the road will be getting a dedicated bus lane, new sidewalks and crosswalks, and more trees. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley helped secure federal funding for the project. She says Blue Hill Avenue hasn't been effectively serving the thousands of drivers, pedestrians, or bus riders who travel along the corridor every day. It is unsafe to travel. It does not add aesthetic value to the communities that it cuts through, and it is not efficient for any mode of transportation. The project is expected to cost $44 million. The bulk of the construction is slated to begin in 2026. Baypath University in Longmeadow is acquiring Boston-based Cambridge College. Nirvani Williams explains why the two schools are becoming one. President Sandra Doran from Baypath says Cambridge was struggling financially during the pandemic and had stagnant enrollment up until last year. But Doran says it's still a good opportunity for Baypath. We had begun to explore what it would look like to expand our our physical presence into the Boston area because, you know, that's where uh, the majority of the population is in this state. The acquisition will nearly double the number of students served by Baypath and bring total enrollment to over 5,000 students. Cambridge's Springfield and Lawrence satellite campuses were not a part of Baypath's acquisition because, according to a representative from the university, since the pandemic, the majority of students from Cambridge are now online. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Bruins play the Vegas Golden Knights at home in Boston tonight. Game time is 7. The Celtics host the Dallas Mavericks tomorrow night at 7.30. The Seas are the first seed in the Eastern Conference. They're looking for their 10th straight win. Windy and increasingly cloudy today with highs only in the mid-30s. Skies will be mostly clear tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, a sunny Friday and first day of March, will have highs in the mid-40s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. You're with WBWAR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. 
And I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Both President Biden and former President Donald Trump will visit the southern border in Texas today. Biden's visit reflects a more aggressive approach to one of his greatest political liabilities. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. The split screen appearances also reflect how visible the border issue is in 2024. As more Americans tell pollsters, immigration is the most important problem facing the U.S. in decades. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is covering the campaign. All right, so Biden and Trump are going to be a little over 300 miles away from each other in Texas. Let's start with President Biden. His second border visit, the first one, January 23rd in El Paso, part of a longer trip to Mexico for the North American Leaders Summit. Franco, what's he hoping to accomplish on this trip? Yeah, hey, Biden's going to visit Brownsville, Texas, where he's going to meet with Border Patrol agents and local leaders. I mean, what he wants to accomplish is to show that he's taking action on the border. You know, it's also actually part of this shift to the political center as he looks toward November. I mean, yesterday he brought in police chiefs to talk about reducing crime, and today it's going to be immigration. Now, on the border, you can expect Biden's going to attack House Republicans for blocking a deal that would have tightened rules for asylum and given more money to hire more border agents. And he's going to go after Trump as well. I mean, Biden says Trump is actually to blame for torpedoing that deal in order to score political points, or at least not to allow Biden to get any. I mean, what Biden's looking to do is kind of turn the tables on Republicans on this issue. So I want to ask you about that. First, though, Trump's visit. He was near the border back in November, and he's made a handful of visits as president. What's his goal today? Yeah, he has made a handful of visits. I mean, his objective is is pretty simple. He wants to highlight the problems on the border, tie them to Biden's policies, and present himself as the only person who can fix them. Now, he's going to Eagle Pass, Texas, where the state has been trying to boost enforcement on its own. Trump's expected to you know, highlight recent crimes committed by migrants in cities like New York. And this week, he and his allies have been blaming Biden for the death of a 22-year-old nursing student in Georgia. An undocumented immigrant from Venezuela was arrested for that crime. You know, Trump wants to capitalize on polls that show most Americans are not happy with Biden's handling of the border. And as you say, this split screen of a day just shows how the border has become a major issue in the presidential election. Yeah. Now, okay, to those opportunities that Democrats see, what are they? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to Evan Ross Smith, a Democrat pollster for the political strategy group Blueprint, and he pointed to a special election in New York earlier this month, won by Democrat Tom Suozzi, who went on the offensive over the border, especially after Republicans tanked that deal. We now have proof positive in this latest election that Republicans are out over their skis again on immigration. They don't know what to do, and they've handed Democrats something they can run on for months or maybe years. Now, Ross Smith says it actually reminds him of how Democrats were able to campaign and win on abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Now, I got to say that's a very optimistic perspective, but it's also very telling how Democrats see this as an opportunity to flip the script on Republicans to kind of counter the narrative that Democrats are soft on the border again on an issue that's really been incredibly difficult for Biden. That's NPR's Franco Ordonez. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Amy. New Mexico's governor made headlines with an executive order last fall banning guns in public places. A less well-known but still debated directive in that order told the state to test schools' wastewater for traces of drugs. 
it's unclear how that data will be used. KUNM's Megan Myskowski reports. There's blowing dust and sideways snow coming down in the desert outside of Belen High School, about 30 miles south of Albuquerque. Two people in bright yellow vests and heavy winter clothes work over an open manhole in the brush behind the school. Ice packs to make sure everything stays cold. Not that that's a problem right now. Tom Brown works with Eastern Research Group, a company that the state of New Mexico is contracting with. So this is our sample. He and a state employee lower tubes down into the sewer, then suspend a barrel-shaped device at the top. This rig will pull samples of wastewater that's exited the school's bathrooms throughout one school day. We're going to take 32 samples every 15 minutes. That equals eight hours' worth of samples. This is happening at 194 schools across the state. Jonas Armstrong with the state's Environment Department says schools reflect their communities, and that's why it makes sense to test them. But data from testing can be imprecise. It can tell us that a substance is present. It can't tell us who is using it. can't tell us how many people are using it. No one at the state level has said what they plan to do with the information. Critics say that raises red flags. The state posts results online. So far, it says cocaine is in about two-thirds of the schools tested, and fentanyl in about a tenth. That data isn't surprising. The superintendent of Albuquerque Public Schools told The Wall Street Journal it confirms a long-known reality. Wastewater testing for drugs has existed for decades and is more popular in Europe and Australia. There has been a lot of wastewater testing for illicit substances in different ways in different places uh, around the country and around the world. Since COVID-19, it has become more accepted and common in the U.S., but not for schools with minors. Contaminant researcher Carlton Poindexter, who teaches at Howard University, says hopefully wastewater testing will lead to more resources for kids who need it. But... There is the risk of stigmatization, and then that community already has some other overlapping stigmatizations and perceptions, and that just kind of adds on to it. And he echoes the fear of many in these communities that it could lead to more police in schools. Marginalized communities, they usually don't have the best experiences with authority figures and police officers. Point Dexter says communities should know about the testing and have a say in the response to it. Because, he says, an evidence-based approach is a community-based one. Southwest Organizing Project activist Amanda Gallegos says the state does consult them on cutting down on illegal drug use. But with the wastewater testing, it feels like it isn't listening. The solution should come from the impacted people. New Mexico's Environment Department spent $600,000 testing school wastewater for drugs over the last six months and is asking for more to continue it. Gallegos calls that a shocking price tag. She thinks that money would have made a bigger impact elsewhere. I could name a couple things off the top of my head. She says teens need places to go, like a teen center or jobs, more counselors in schools, and addiction treatment. There's not a lot available in New Mexico. For NPR News, I'm Megan Myskowski in Albuquerque. This 
This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBMR's Morning Edition, the health ministry in Gaza says more than 30,000 people have died in the region since the current war began, including many women and children. Highs in the mid-30s today, but the wind will make it feel much colder and skies may grow overcast into the afternoon. It'll clear up tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s, then a sunny Friday tomorrow in the mid-40s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. And Maplewood Country Day Camp, family-run for 60 years, with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com. The CEO of nonprofit United Way of Massachusetts Bay plans to step down. Bob Giannino says he's stepping down in April for health reasons. He was head of the group for nearly four years. Officials say a permanent search for his replacement is underway. The owner of TJ Maxx, Marshalls and Home Goods reports sales surpassed $50 billion last year. Framingham-based TJX announced the milestone in its earnings call yesterday. WBWAR's Zindra and Wameka reports. TJX finished last year strong, with holiday sales jumping 13 percent compared to the same time last year. It seems the company was able to win over shoppers hunting for deals amid persistent inflation. CEO Ernie Herman told investors the company is attracting a range of customers. With new customers, we continue to skew a little younger, which is what we want. It bodes well for the future. We also are trying to create additional visits out of our existing customers because that is still a huge driver of market share. Herman says TJX will likely also benefit from Macy's announcement to close 150 of its stores nationwide. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. It's 7.45. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com slash wilderness. From Workday, with AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. As February, which is Black History Month, comes to a close, a high school in Virginia is celebrating with an annual showcase. When I first arrived and started working here at this school, we didn't really have a comprehensive Black History Month program at all. NPR's Shelby Hawkins spoke with a planner of the Black History Month program in one of Northern Virginia's biggest high schools. Ra Alim Shabazz remembers when he first decided to be an agent of change at Alexandria City High School, where a third of the students identify as Black. My students, they said, we should do more for Black History Month, don't you think? And I said, yes, we should. And that is when I pledged my energy to building something that we could all be proud of. A decade into his mission, the annual showcase features student-led dance, music, and theater. Senior Yanni Sangare has been the student playwright for the past four years. There is so much that, like, you wish you can express. And with art, you can take a step, too, without just saying it yourself, saying it through, you know, 
tens of characters and an entire plotline and story getting to tell that, you know, and having people listen to it. This year's play explores how two hate crimes shaped the community. Yanni was inspired by a school trip to Montgomery, Alabama. It's part of the Alexandria Community Remembrance Project to confront America's history with racial terror. We live in a comparatively progressive area in a very non-progressive state. We have phenomenal teachers who are pushing back against that. We can learn about historic lynchings. We can look at Emmett Till. But when we look at Joseph McCoy, Benjamin Thomas, we're seeing quite literally the ghosts that haunt Old Town. McCoy and Thomas were the only two people known to have been lynched in Alexandria. They were teens in the late 19th century. This isn't something that's just taught in history class. This is real. I think there's almost sometimes a dissonance when you're learning about racial history in America and history classes, where you feel separate from it because it happened X amount of years ago. Senior Ben Del Negro co-produced a documentary about the school trip. He says the project gave him a better sense of belonging. If anything, this entire project made me realize that there was a community here. It made me realize that Alexandria, both the bad and the good, is an integral part of who I am as a person. Black Student Union President Jesslyn Hunter found comfort through the experience. As teenagers, a lot of times we can feel isolated, either in our opinions or our interests or anything. And so having so many other students who focus on the same goals and kind of the same evolution and have gone along the same paths that many of us have, it's really an honor. Going to a school once named after segregationist T.C. Williams got Jocelyn reflecting on a history where Americans who look like her led separate and unequal lives. As she prepares for college, she's hoping to inspire future students. We were placed in a position to directly view how children and families were some of the most impacted victims of racial crime and discrimination in America. It invoked in me a further desire to work with the next generation. The curtain's closing on the current cohort's high school days. They're packing up for places like New York and Atlanta, carrying what they learned to the next phase of their lives. I feel confident in the youth of tomorrow because I'm here preparing them today. Next, Shabazz is planning a mini pilgrimage to historical sites throughout Virginia. Shelby Hawkins, NPR News, Alexandria, Virginia. This is NPR News. It's a Thursday on WBUR, coming up in about a half hour here on Morning Edition. After decades of research, pig organs modified to avoid rejection by the human immune system are finally poised to be tested in clinical trials. It's 7.50. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Maestro Raphael Pichon leads a fresh take on Beethoven's Ninth. March 15th and 16th at Symphony Hall, handelandhyden.org. BUR is such a critical part of my life that I just wanted to make sure that BUR is still here for the next generation and the next generation after that. Your legacy is WBUR's future. Learn more at wbur.org legacy. The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity. Joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The U.S. Supreme Court says it'll take up Donald Trump's claims he has presidential immunity in his federal election interference case. Meanwhile, President Biden and Donald Trump will both visit Texas border towns today to talk about immigration policy. And Gaza's health ministry says more than 30,000 people have been killed in the region since the Israel-Hamas war began. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Lesley University. Invest in your passion at lesley.edu. Windy, mid-30s, and increasingly overcast today. It falls to the mid-20s tonight and will be mostly clear tomorrow, sunny and mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. And now it's time for our February Bill of the Month. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is senior contributing editor with our partner, KFF Health News. Welcome, doctor. Welcome back. Good to be back. So whose bill are we discussing today? We're looking into a bill for Deborah Pritchard. Deborah had a stroke and several brain aneurysms last year. After one incident, though, Deborah was rushed by helicopter from rural Tennessee to a hospital in Nashville. Deborah, who was 70, died of a brain bleed some weeks later. That left her family to deal with the financial fallout from the air ambulance trip. Hmm. Okay, reporter Emily Siner spoke with Deborah's daughter. And now Emily has a breakdown on the ins and outs of Medicare like nothing you've heard before. Alicia Weberg's mother, Deborah, was a retired factory worker who was careful with her money, loved her grandkids, and was a very private person, sometimes to a fault, Alicia says. Anytime we tried to get her to talk about having a will or if she had enough money, or if she had enough insurance, she just always was very tight-lipped about it and said everything was fine. This was a problem after Deborah's emergency flight to the hospital. Shortly after her death, the family opened up a bill from the helicopter company for nearly $82,000. Alicia had heard that helicopter bills could be expensive, but that price tag left her stunned. We had already kind of done an internet search to see what the average price would be. But then when it came in, we were just kind of like, this is ridiculous. At the heart of the issue is the complicated nature of Medicare. Most Americans age 65 and older can enroll for free in what's called Medicare Part A. And this covers hospital stays, like Deborah's. But what it doesn't cover is ambulance rides. For that, you need Medicare Part B. And Part B costs about $175 a month if you don't have a subsidy. Alicia realized after the fact that her mother skipped that coverage. She suspects Deborah wanted to avoid having to pay for those premiums every month. I just wish I had known she didn't have adequate insurance so that I could have talked to her. And whether it would have done any good or not, it would have still felt like I did what I could. To make things more confusing, in addition to Part A and Part B, Medicare also has a Part C and D. And so while Alicia is frustrated that her mom did not get the extra insurance, she's also frustrated by the Medicare system. I do find it concerning that, you know, seniors on a fixed income have to make that decision. Why, as you get older and and you go into Medicare and fixed incomes, why is it more complicated? As for the lingering bill, a spokesperson for the helicopter company Global Medical Response said in an email it's committed to finding a, quote, equitable solution. 
Alicia has been working with the lawyer for her mother's estate, who tried to get the medical transport company to negotiate on the cost. As of early February, Alicia says the company had not offered to reduce the bill. And they said that they would wait to see what the inventory of the estate was. In the meantime, Alicia is trying to sell her mother's longtime home and property. As it stands, if the family ends up having to pay the nearly $82,000 bill, that single helicopter ride could eat up about a third of the estate's value. For NPR News, I'm Emily Siner. And now we're back with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Doctor, for Bill of the Month, we've talked about pricey air ambulance rides before, so that part, it's disturbing, but it's not new. But weren't there changes to help patients avoid these surprise bills? Well, first, let me share an update on this particular bill. This month, the helicopter ambulance company filed in court to collect the entire bill from Deborah's estate. That's nearly $82,000. But you're right, the federal law called the No Surprises Act does a lot to protect patients from outrageous air ambulance bills, but it only covers patients with commercial insurance. Okay, but Deborah had public insurance, so why wasn't she protected? Well, it didn't seem necessary for public insurance like Medicare or Medicaid to be included in that law since the government sets rates that are much lower than what companies typically charge. But that only works for Medicare if you understand those A, B, Cs, the complicated stuff. And remember, Deborah didn't pay for Part B, which covers ambulances. We spoke with one health economist who says if Deborah had Part B, the maximum charge Medicare would have allowed would have been less than $10,000. And the patient portion may have been less than $2,000, so big difference there. Can we expect to hear about other sky-high air ambulance bills? Sure, because the No Surprises Act offers a lot of protection, but it's not airtight. This is especially important for people who are uninsured or on high deductible plans. Also, if they live in a rural area like Deborah Pritchard, you have to be especially mindful since you're much more likely to need a so-called life flight, particularly as more rural hospitals close. That is Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Dr. Rosenthal, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you have a confusing or outrageous medical bill that you want us to review, please go to NPR's SHOTS blog and tell us all about it. Ever heard a snippet from a song and just can't recall who sang it or where you heard it before? Yeah, frustrating, right? Yes, there you go. There you go. Steve does. Now, there's actually a song that's famous for being a song that nobody can quite place. Yeah, it's kind of catchy. Whatever the heck it is, 17 seconds, a fragment of a song, terrible audio quality. And even though it says everyone knows that in the lyrics, nobody actually knows what it is. In 2021, a person known only as Carl92 uploaded it to a crowdsourcing site and it became an internet phenomenon. Everyone knows that. Yeah, and then a subreddit formed around identifying the artist. Ideas were discussed and conspiracy theories were hatched. I mean, could it all just be a clever PR stunt? Well, nobody has identified the artist and it is now gained new life on TikTok. 
So I've seen a lot of people talk about everyone knows that ulterior motives. And I just I'm think it's one of those songs that was a demo or was a really small local band that recorded it. And the singer I found on TikTok is claiming that the song is by him, but he hasn't uploaded any proof. A super strong theory and one that I believe to be true is that the singer is Kazumasa Oda, a very popular singer from the 80s. And 90s. OK, so if you know who performed, everyone knows that. Or if maybe it was you listening, we would love to know. <laughs> Give the rest of you the answer here. I think it was Steve the crooner in Steve. Everyone knows that. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. It'll only be in the mid-30s today, and gusty winds will make it feel much colder. Clouds will move in throughout the day. Tonight's skies clear, and it falls to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny skies and mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Supreme Court has agreed to decide whether Donald Trump is immune from prosecution on charges he interfered with the 2020 election. It's Thursday, February 29th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, remembering Mitch McConnell's legacy after his announcement that he'll step down as Senate Minority Leader. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. Also this hour, Washington, D.C. is marking 50 years of so-called home rule. Plus, Hunter Biden testified for more than six hours yesterday in the impeachment inquiry into his father, President Joe Biden. The Republican members wanted to spend more time talking about my client's addiction than anything to do with what they call their impeachment inquiry. Increasing clouds, windy, and 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The health ministry in Gaza says more than 30,000 people have been killed there in the war between Hamas and Israel. It began last October when Hamas attacked Israel, killing at least 1,200 people. NPR's Aya Batrawi says some Israelis have challenged the death toll, saying some of the Palestinians who have been killed are Hamas fighters. The ministry has been keeping detailed records from hospitals that show most of the deaths since the war began are women and children. That's very much not in dispute. And we've spoken to countless survivors in Gaza and witnessed through our own producer there. Attacks where victims of Israeli airstrikes were civilians, including women, men and children. And Pierre's Aya Batrawi reporting. President Biden and former President Donald Trump will both visit the southern border in Texas today to see immigration conditions. Trump is claiming that his visit is what prompted Biden to go today. The White House contradicts that. It says Biden's visit was already planned and notes he has previously visited the border during his presidency. The immigration issue is proving to be consequential in this year's presidential election. Illinois has removed Donald Trump's name from the state's presidential primary ballot. The state's primary is set for March 19th. From member station WBEZ, Dave McKinney reports Trump is pledging to appeal the decision. Trump attacked the judge's decision as unconstitutional. 
The judgment now makes Illinois the third state, along with Colorado and Maine, in booting Trump from the ballot on grounds his actions January 6th disqualify him as a candidate under the 14th Amendment. Chicago attorney Karen Lederer represents the Illinois objectors to Trump's candidacy and is praising the ruling. It's contributing to the growing consensus of other reviewing bodies that have recognized and condemned Trump's decisive role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The U.S. Supreme Court is facing pressure to decide Colorado's disqualification of Trump ahead of that state's Tuesday primary. For NPR News, I'm Dave McKinney in Chicago. The Department of Transportation wants to make air travel in the U.S. more accessible to people who use wheelchairs. As NPR's Joel Rose reports, the Biden administration is proposing new standards for how airlines accommodate passengers with disabilities. Travelers who use wheelchairs have long complained that airlines often damage or lose them. Now the Biden administration is trying to change that. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the proposed rule would make it easier to hold airlines accountable when they damage or delay the return of a wheelchair. This is about making sure that all Americans can travel safely and with dignity. The rule would also require that airlines provide more training for employees who physically assist passengers with disabilities and handle wheelchairs. The immediate reaction from disability advocates was largely positive, although the rule does not go as far as some had hoped. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts Democratic House leaders say they're discussing ways to better manage the state's emergency family shelter program, but they say they have no plans to eliminate the state's right-to-shelter law. That law guarantees shelter services for most families and pregnant people. After meeting with the Democratic caucus yesterday, House Speaker Ron Mariano said increasing demand and declining tax revenue is putting a lot of strain on the system. We're looking at a billion-dollar bill for next year in the midst of declining revenues. Do you realize what that'll do to us? And, and we have to take a look at how we administer this program. Mariano said Democrats are discussing a lot of different options to manage the growing fiscal crisis, but offered no details. Teachers at the John D. O'Brien School in Roxbury are praising the district's decision to scrap a plan to move the exam school. This week, the city shelved the plan to move the O'Brien from Roxbury to West Roxbury. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the proposal faced stiff opposition since it was introduced last summer. O'Brien educators say they're excited that the move is off the table. Social studies teacher Aparna Lakshmi says she hopes the district meaningfully includes stakeholders in the process of forming a new plan to improve school facilities. That they don't just sort of say, well, that's not happening. We'll get back to you in five years. That they instead partner with us and help us figure out what to do next. Boston Teachers Union President Jessica Tang adds that the district pulling the plug on the plan shows good leadership. Having heard overwhelming opposition and not a ton of support, it was the right decision. District leaders plan to meet with stakeholders about what's next on March 13th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Burlington, Vermont, is among dozens of cities in the Northeast on track to have their warmest winters ever. In Worcester, it'll be close. Data show that so far this year, Boston has been more than three degrees warmer than average. Jessica Spaccio is a climatologist with the Northeast Regional Climate Center. She says El Nino was a big player in our weather this year, but climate change was also a factor. 
Would we have been warm without climate change? Absolutely. We had a strong alivio. Would we have been record-breaking warm? Maybe not, right? That definitely made us warmer than we would have been if we weren't living in a warming world. The Northeast Regional Climate Center is predicting above-normal temperatures will continue into next month. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the exhibition Auschwitz, Not Long Ago, Not Far Away. Humanity needs you to hear this story. A must-see exhibition opening March 15th in Boston. The Bruins are on home ice tonight. They skate against the Vegas Golden Knights at 7. The Celtics are in the middle of a major nine-game winning streak. They play the Dallas Mavericks in Boston tomorrow night at 7. Clouds move in throughout the day today. It'll be breezy with highs in the mid-30s. Tonight, mostly clear skies and lows in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, we end the week with a sunny day and highs in the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The Gaza Health Ministry says more than 30,000 people have been killed in the war there. And we're getting reports today of dozens more killed by Israeli forces as they were awaiting aid in the north. This death toll is one measure of the human cost of the Israel-Hamas war. The Hamas attack on Israel last October killed more than 1,200 people. Since then, Israel's critics have pointed to the rising Gaza death toll to argue that Israel's response is disproportionate. Israelis have challenged this number and said some of the dead are Hamas fighters, while Palestinians have reported that most are women and children. We're joined now by NPR correspondent Ayo Batrawi in Dubai. Uh, what do we know about who has been killed in Gaza? Well, the ministry has been keeping detailed records from hospitals that show most of the deaths since the war began are women and children. That's very much not in dispute. And we've spoken to countless survivors in Gaza and witnessed through our own producer there attacks where victims of Israeli airstrikes were civilians, including women, men and children. And I spoke with a mother early in this war who was in Gaza City. She was trying to survive those airstrikes all around her. And a few weeks later, she was killed by one of them, including 22 members of her family. Um, Some of those bodies were never retrieved, including her husband and son, and that really speaks to a larger issue in the official count, which is there are so many missing people that aren't included in the death toll. Now, as Steve mentioned, what's not clear is how many Hamas fighters have been killed in Gaza. Yeah, we hear bodies buried in the rubble. How many might that be? Thousands, and not just those buried. I mean, there are also people missing who were hastily buried with no way to record their deaths in hospitals, people lying in the streets that that can't be reached. Um, You know, I spoke with a senior Palestinian health ministry official in the West Bank last month. Dr. Yasser Bozea works closely with the Gaza Health Ministry. Here's what he said. This is an underestimation because it's more than 10,000 people under rubble, at least. Yeah, and he says the death toll also doesn't include people dying because they can't access treatment. It only includes those from direct violence, so mostly airstrikes. And, you know, researchers and aid agencies say many thousands more will die in Gaza, even if the war ended today, from disease and hunger-related causes. What are the challenges that the health ministry is facing while trying to compile accurate data on the number of people killed? 
Well, we analyzed one of their reports on the death toll. And what I found was a system that's completely strained under the weight of this war. I mean, in the early days of Israel's heavy bombardment of Gaza, you know, hospital emergency rooms were recording the name, age, gender, and ID numbers of each victim into an electronic database. And that list was made public about three weeks into the war after President Biden cast doubt on the number of people killed provided by Gaza's health ministry, which is administered by Hamas. But by around mid-November, there were communication blackouts across Gaza and lethal Israeli raids on key hospitals in the north as you know the military searched for hostages in Hamas but this led to disruptions in the death count and the electronic database you know and medical staff themselves were detained killed or they had to flee these hospitals and move south so the ministry's death toll is mostly based on hospital records but there are just a few functioning hospitals now in Gaza so what the ministry is doing is they're increasingly relying on estimates from public sources and media reports for casualties in the north like today's attack where Israel controls access. And even so, the health ministry's figure is still widely seen as the most reliable one available. And in past wars, it's been mostly consistent with the UN and Israel. That's NPR's Ayabatrawi speaking with us from Dubai. Thank you very much. Thanks always, A. Eh? Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell is the longest serving U.S. Senate leader in history. He was influential and powerful both as a majority and minority leader in the United States Senate. And now he says he'll step down toward the end of the year. Republican strategist Scott Jennings played senior roles on Senator McConnell's campaigns. And Scott, I've got a thing here that says you consider Senator McConnell a close friend and mentor. Is that about right? Yeah, I've known him for 28 years since I was 18 years old and a college student in the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville. Why do you think he is leaving at this particular moment? Well, I think he was pretty clear in his speech, Steve, that he, you know, realized that turning 82 years old and, and talked about dealing with a personal family tragedy had reminded him of uh, the need to reflect on your own life and, and what it's time to do and when. And I think he sent a pretty loud and unmistakable message to the rest of our political leadership in this country when he did it. Um, although it's possible to say that he was also acknowledging that his influence was waning. He seemed increasingly in recent years to be, I don't know if leading by following is exactly accurate, but realizing that his Republican caucus was not in the same place he was on issues like aid to Ukraine. Yeah, I think there there is definitely a division in the conference over these issues about foreign affairs in particular, and there's no doubt that it took a toll on him fighting these battles. Uh, but I do think he could have been reelected leader had he wanted to be. But I do think over the last few months, he came to the realization that at some point, the next generation of leadership has to step forward. And when he comes out of leadership, he'll have two years left in a term. He won't be shackled by the burdens of leading a party. Uh, and he'll be free, I think, really to lead the Reagan faction of the Republican Senate conference and fighting forcefully uh, for uh, an engaged American superpower in the world. Oh, now this is very interesting. Nancy Pelosi has remained in the House of Representatives after stepping down as speaker, as a speaker emerita, uh, is thought still to be influential. You think that McConnell will still be trying to use his influence in a larger way than just being a single senator then? Yeah, he, he is the second most uh, senior person in the Republican conference. The Senate is organized on seniority. He's always been on the Appropriations Committee. I have a strong suspicion he's going to use that perch uh, to replenish and expand America's arsenals. And he'll have a lot to say about uh, the Reagan worldview 
And of course, that's going to be counterbalanced against these new Trump era senators who are arguing for a more isolationist policy. I think McConnell's actually looking forward to being unshackled by the uh, the leadership position so hmm. that he can be free to fight for that worldview that I, I really do believe he feels deeply in his heart. Now, there's a larger question of McConnell's legacy. Congress, uh, he, he was somebody who would work the Senate rules. He would sometimes get things done, very often block things, most famously blocking the appointment of a Supreme Court justice by President Obama in 2016, which arguably changed the balance on the court and changed history. How did he feel? How has he felt about using the Senate rules to get what he wants? Well, he, he believes uh, that he was right to do that and that it was proper for the Senate to play that kind of a role. Uh, he also believes that his moves on the judiciary, particularly on the Supreme Court, are the most consequential things that he did. So he would agree with your assessment. And over the next two years, I suspect he's going to continue to have an interest in this issue of the federal judiciary. I mean, you never know when there'll be another Supreme Court vacancy. Biden, of course, has swung the balance back during his term. And so I would expect McConnell to help his successor, whoever that is, restart the pipeline and keep the focus on putting conservative judges on the bench. Although I'm kind of wondering what the consequences of that are going to be uh, after this year's election. If we do end up in a circumstance where one party controls the majority in the Senate and one party controls the White House, could we end up with basically no justices or no judges being confirmed at all? Well, you, you raise an interesting question. There are some people who are starting to believe that we could be in for a triple flip, White House, Senate, and House, all changing party hands. That would, of course, uh, mean the Senate was in Republican hands and yeah. uh, a Democrat back in the White House. We'll have to see what happens. Uh, but I think McConnell's tactical experience in this realm will be invaluable to the next uh, Republican leader. And if Donald Trump wins the presidency, he's going to need the Mitch McConnells of the world to do what he did before, and that's get good people onto the bench. I think McConnell will be eager uh, to align himself with a Republican president on that, even if they have disagreements on other issues. Just got a few seconds, but why did McConnell appear to defer to Trump so often when he was thought to loathe Trump? Could hardly say his name. Well, you know, McConnell has always believed that presidents and presidential nominees do effectively lead their party. They're the most influential people in the party. And his job uh, was to help a Republican president be successful. To understand McConnell is to understand one word, outcomes. He was always looking to get outcomes for the Republican Party and the conservative worldview. I think he did that effectively with Trump, even though they obviously had a famous break at the yeah. end of Trump's term in office. They, uh, there's really no debating. They achieved quite a lot together. Scott Jennings, longtime friend and supporter of Mitch McConnell. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Comedian Richard Lewis has died at the age of 76. He was a stand-up comic who gained fame as a TV regular and later as one of the stars of HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm. NPR's Netta Ulibi has our remembrance. As Larry David's good friend on the show, the two argued endlessly. I said Mussolini, you said Mussolini. You know, it's not Mussolini like muesli. It's not, no, it's it's like, not like a cereal. I compare, I, they argued muesli over muesli how to pronounce things. They argued over the check. They even argued over the death of Lewis's beloved pet parakeet. This is a tragedy. You treated it like it was nothing to me. No, how I, dare I, you? I, I don't see it as a tragedy. You know, why not? It's uh, my it bird. If it was a parrot, it would be a tragedy. Oh, really? It was some exotic bird from Brazil, like a macaw or a toucan. I don't live in a Cuban dance hall. Richard Lewis got his start in stand-up the traditional way by making fun of his Jewish mother. She can throw guilt without moving her conscience. It's unbelievable, my mother. That's Lewis on his 1985 Showtime special, I Am In Pain. 
He was a TV fixture for years, but the comedian struggled with drugs and alcohol. In 2001, he told the Todd Munt Show from Michigan Radio he was too high to remember a Carnegie Hall performance with multiple standing ovations. I remember asking my sister, are you sure they stood up twice? Are you sure I was on stage almost three hours? I mean, I didn't even remember the show. Lewis sobered up in 1994 in part because of the death of his friend, comedian John Candy. Sobriety became central to his life. Before he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease a few years ago, he wrote several memoirs about how the Prince of Pain, as he called himself, had found peace. Lewis also found fans playing the evil Prince John in the Mel Brooks movie Robin Hood Men in Tights and as himself on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm going to go. I'm going to go too. I'm going this way. No, no, I'm going this way. No, you, you came from that way. In a statement on social media, Larry David said Richard Lewis was both the funniest person and also the sweetest. But today he made me sob, he said. And for that, I'll never forgive him. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. The big story we're following this morning is that the Supreme Court has agreed to decide whether former President Donald Trump is immune from federal prosecution. Meanwhile, Trump and President Joe Biden will make dueling visits today to the southern U.S. border in Texas. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Hunter Biden testified for six hours yesterday in the Republican-led House impeachment inquiry into his father. He pushed back against claims that President President Biden was inappropriately involved in his family's business dealings. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products. Located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. ALPrime.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston. You follow the news every day on WBUR, but how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org fun. Increasing clouds today and windy will have highs only in the mid-30s. Tonight it falls to the mid-20s and skies will be mostly clear. Tomorrow high temperatures rise to the mid-40s and it'll be sunny. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Take a break and play the WBUR crossword puzzle every day. Today's clue, six across, repeat performance. Play the puzzle for free at WBUR.org fun. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. 
and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Scientists have begun cloning genetically modified pigs with organs designed to be transplanted into people. That's a lot, so I'm going to repeat it. Scientists have started cloning genetically modified pigs with organs designed to be transplanted into people. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein recently became the first journalist to tour one of the research farms breeding these pigs and brings us an exclusive report. I wind down a two-lane road through the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in southwest Virginia and turn onto an unmarked gravel driveway. Good morning. Rob Stein from NPR. Dave Ayers. Dave Ayers runs Revivacore. It's a biotech company in nearby Blacksburg, Virginia. He's showing me around the company's research farm. It's where scientists are breeding cloned, gene-edited pigs to provide kidneys, hearts, livers, and other organs. Organs that they hope will save thousands of people who need transplants. It's exciting. We've been working on this for more than 20 years, and it's no longer a science fiction experiment. It's actually reality. Ayers asked me not to disclose the farm's exact location for security reasons. We have 22 buildings and a census of pigs around 300 pigs, all for research purposes. We head into one of the yellow one-story buildings and change it to hospital scrubs. It's a barrier facility, so it's we're trying to protect the pigs, not us. Okay, <laughs> protect the pigs from us. Yeah, that's right. From catching any infections from us. After we've changed, we climb into a truck. We're gonna go through a truck wash. So we have a disinfectant bay that we drive the truck through to clean the truck and the undercarriage and drive through a tall chain-link security gate before heading into the first barn by first stepping through a disinfecting tub to sterilize our boots. Inside, we find seven female pigs. Four are pregnant with genetically modified cloned pig embryos. The other three are suckling litters of modified piglets. So this is the farrowing facility where the newborn piglets are born. So those are genetically modified piglets. Yes, all these piglets are genetically modified. Wow, wow. Genetically modified by fusing edited pig skin cells with pig eggs. Two zaps of electricity turn them into cloned pig embryos that are implanted into the wombs of adult pigs. Four months later, cloned piglets are born, each with ten identical genetic modifications designed to make sure their organs don't grow too big, won't cause blood clots, and won't be rejected by the human immune system. Every cell in the body of this animal has those same genetic modifications. And when we procure an organ from them, you know, like every other cell, it's carrying the desired genetic modification that will be used for organ transplant. Their hearts, their kidneys, their lungs, their livers all have the 10 genetic modifications so that they'll be compatible for transplants. If you want, you know, you can hold one. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. You'll be surprised at how dense they are. Oh, it's, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. You're so cute. How old are they? These piglets are around two and a half to three weeks. It's okay. It's okay. I gently return the squirming piglet to his mom so he can feed with his litter mates and follow heirs into the nursery barn 
where the baby pigs go once they're old enough to be weaned from their mothers. Dozens of young pigs are sleeping, sniffing, playing. They have hanging toys, they have balls that they like to play with. Some of them at times will even play soccer with each other. You can roll the ball to them, they'll roll it back to you. They're very smart, interactive animals. Once they're old enough, the pigs are bred to produce more litters of identically modified animals that can be sacrificed when they're about a year old for research or to provide organs for transplants. Those litters will allow us to do multiple organ procurements. From one animal, for example, we can get two kidneys and a heart. And the holy grail would be to get all the organs that you need for human transplant from one donor animal. Today, more than 100,000 people are on the waiting list for transplants in the U.S. 17 die every day without getting one because there aren't enough human organs available. So Ayers envisions a day not too far off when Revivacor will run big commercial farms scattered around the country. These farms will breed herds of these modified cloned pigs for people who need organs. There will be multiple facilities coast to coast in order to produce enough organs for transplant. Revivacor has already built a bigger, even higher security farm nearby. That farm will produce pigs for a pivotal study in people to try to get the modified pig organs approved by the Food and Drug Administration. But this new kind of transplantation raises lots of questions about the risk of accidentally spreading some dangerous pig virus to people, about breeding and sacrificing thousands of genetically modified pigs to harvest their organs. Sid Johnson is a bioethicist at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. They're treated like machines for the sole purpose of being disassembled to provide spare parts for humans. And I think the hubris of this kind of human intervention and the radical exploitation of a human-created, built-for-purpose animal should really give us pause. But Air says the company treats the pigs humanely and is making extra sure they're free of any infections. And, he notes, Americans sacrifice far more pigs each year for food. We've been using animals as food and on our dinner table, hundreds of millions of those animals every year. We're talking here about maybe 100,000 or 200,000 animals that would be used to save lives. I would argue that this is a, you know, a higher use for these animals. Certainly, I think, a higher use than using these animals for food. These pigs have the opportunity to transform medicine and save a lot of lives. To get the green light from the FDA, Revivacor is first testing the modified pig organs in baboons and in the bodies of people who have been declared brain dead. And surgeons have even implanted gene-edited pig hearts in two men who had run out of other options. They only survived a few weeks, but Air says the volunteers provided valuable information about using organs from genetically modified cloned pigs to try to save dying people. Rob Stein, NPR News, near Blacksburg, Virginia. It's NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, Sony is betting big on a new video game called Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. It mixes nostalgia for a 1997 classic with top-line graphics and a retooled story. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. 
Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Winter Johnston. Another state has been ordered to remove Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump from the GOP primary ballot. The decision by a judge in Cook County, Illinois, was based on arguments that Trump engaged in an insurrection. Karen Lederer, an attorney representing Free Speech for People, took part in filing the case. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment provides that you're disqualified from office if you engage in insurrection after taking an oath to uphold the Constitution. Attorneys for Trump have until Friday to file an appeal. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will be stepping down from his leadership role at the end of the year, ending his record-setting tenure. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports a number of Republicans are lining up to fill the position. Whoever succeeds McConnell is likely to be named John. There are three Johns interested in the job, uh, John Thune of South Dakota, John Barrasso of Wyoming, and John Cornyn of Texas. Former President Trump is likely to be a factor in that race, but we should note the election for the Republican leader comes after the November election. Senate Republicans are favored to flip control of the chamber, but if they don't or if a Republican doesn't win the White House, that could affect the race for McConnell's successor. That's NPR's Deidre Walsh reporting. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Non-white drivers in the state are more likely to be arrested, charged, and searched during a traffic stop than white drivers. That's according to a new report from the state's public safety agency. Data was collected from traffic stops in Boston and seven other police departments in Massachusetts in 2021 and 2022. The report said it did not appear officers considered race when determining who to pull over, but it found white drivers were more likely to get off with just a warning. Officials will present the report and accept public feedback in a series of meetings next month. The city of Worcester begins a road safety campaign today. As WBWAR's John Bender reports, 43 people have been killed in crashes over the last five years. The new Vision Zero safety plan will include efforts to reduce dangerous driving and improve pedestrian and biker safety. Worcester Department of Transportation and Mobility Commissioner Stephen Raleigh says the city is also considering reducing what are called statutory speed limits. That's the speed limit that applies to any street that's not under a posted speed limit. The vast majority of streets in the city, currently that speed limit is 30 miles per hour in Worcester, and there is a proposal before city council to reduce that to 25 miles an hour. Raleigh says he hopes to have a comprehensive plan ready by the fall. Boston launched a similar Vision Zero plan last year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. The city of Boston is planning to install hundreds of electric vehicle chargers over the next couple of years without spending a dime. The city's transportation department says it wants to partner with two private companies to install the charging stations. The names of those companies have not yet been disclosed, but 
City officials say the 10-year contract would include 250 new EV charging stations installed in Boston over the next two years. The plan still needs approval from the city council. It's 8:33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres on stage now through March 3rd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The NBA leading Celtics are getting ready to host the Dallas Mavericks tomorrow night at 7. They go into tomorrow's matchup with a nine-game winning streak. The Bruins skate tonight on the ice in Boston. They host the Vegas Golden Knights at 7. Windy and increasingly cloudy today with highs only in the mid-30s. Skies will be mostly clear tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, a sunny Friday and first day of March will have highs in the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. After months of delays, Hunter Biden went behind closed doors yesterday to testify on Capitol Hill. The House GOP made Hunter Biden a central figure in their impeachment probe into his father, President Joe Biden. And after more than six hours of testimony, Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell, told reporters the questions from Republicans focused on the son's personal failings, not the father's involvement. It seems to me that the Republican members wanted to spend more time talking about my client's addiction than they could ask any question that had anything to do with what they call their impeachment inquiry. It was considered a high-stakes conversation in an impeachment probe that has so far failed to prove any wrongdoing by President Biden. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales is here with more. Uh, Any specifics about uh, what Hunter Biden told lawmakers in this closed-door session? Well, we do know from Hunter Biden's opening remarks, which NPR obtained, that he really pushed back on this Republican-led impeachment probe before the House Judiciary and Oversight Committees. And he echoed some of the same statements made by the president's brother, James Biden, who also appeared before these same panels in closed-door testimony last week. Now, did he say anything directly about Joe Biden, his father? Well, according to the statement, he said that his father did play a role in terms of his process of recovering from his addiction, but he played no role at all in his business dealings. And he also said that he was there to, quote, provide the committees with one uncontestable fact that should end the false premise of this inquiry. And he went on to say that his father was not involved in his business dealings as a lawyer, as an investor, as a board member, as an artist. He called the probe a partisan political pursuit that was built on a house of cards and that it was based on lies told by witnesses with credibility now in question as several are facing their own criminal cases. And he also reiterated 
again, that he made these mistakes and he squandered opportunities and privileges that were afforded to him, that he was responsible for, for that and making amends for it. But he said that his father saved his life and what he got in return was a barrage of conspiracy theories and this impeachment inquiry. All right. So how are Republicans reacting to Hunter Biden's testimony? Well, they told a very different story from Hunter Biden and his legal team. The Republican chairs of these committees, that's Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan and Oversight Chair James Comer, were upbeat. Comer said that this was a great deposition. Um, he claimed that Hunter Biden made, quote, contradictory statements. However, here he is talking to reporters. I think this was a great deposition for us. Uh, it proved several bits of our evidence uh, that we've been uh, conducting throughout this investigation. Uh, but there are also some contradictory statements that I think need further review. But Comer didn't elaborate on what those contradictions were when asked. All right. So the impeachment inquiry, what now? So he says, Comer says the next step is a public hearing, and now we're expecting Hunter Biden to get his original wish, which is he will testify publicly. At least that's the plan right now. Transcripts should be released in the coming days. But Republicans have a difficult road ahead in the House. It's a narrowly controlled chamber, and it's still not clear any of this will convince all of their members to move forward with this impeachment inquiry of President Biden. That's NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This year, Washington, D.C. marks 50 years of home rule, 50 years since electing its first mayor in modern times. In the past, Congress asserted far more direct control over this federal district. Now residents have more say, though Congress still dominates, and D.C. residents have no representation there. Jacob Fenston reports on the D.C. statehood movement. Jamal Holtz remembers the moment that turned him into an activist for D.C. statehood. He was a teenager back when Congress considered defunding the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. His own family had struggled to afford good health care. I had experiences where I visit hospitals and doctors and went denied treatment just on the basis of the type of insurances that I had. President Obama put out a call to action. He said, call your senators. But as a D.C. resident, Holtz didn't have a senator. Truly, I felt like I was a second-class citizen. D.C. residents have been in a sort of democratic limbo for more than 200 years, ever since the city was founded as the seat of the federal government, not part of any state. In 1973, with the backdrop of the civil rights movement, Congress granted the majority black city limited self-government. Under home rule, D.C. residents can elect their own mayor and city council. They can vote for president, but local laws on everything from criminal penalties to building height limits go through Congress. George Derek Musgrove is a history professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Since the passage of home rule, we've had little baby steps here and there towards greater D.C. self-determination. But he says Republicans in Congress have interfered with affairs in this left-leaning city, banning funding for abortion or needle exchanges, preventing D.C. from regulating marijuana. Over the years, there have been attempts to grant D.C. more autonomy. There was even a constitutional amendment that would have treated D.C. like a state with two senators and one representative in the House. And in fact, it passes Congress in 1978. It's defeated before the states, unfortunately. 
As attempts like this failed, the idea of statehood gained traction. In a 2016 referendum, 86% of D.C. voters backed a new state. It would include all the city's residential neighborhoods with a population bigger than Vermont or Wyoming. It would leave a two-square-mile independent federal district containing the White House and the U.S. Capitol. Democrats in the House passed D.C. statehood bills twice in 2020 and 2021. Republicans railed against it. Here's James Comer of Kentucky. It's about Democrats adding two new progressive U.S. senators. Opponents also say making D.C. a state would run afoul of the U.S. Constitution. Roger Pilon is a constitutional scholar with the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank. There is no authority in Congress to convert the district into a state. He says D.C. can't be admitted in the same way as other states through a simple majority vote in Congress. The District of Columbia is not simply another federal territory. It's unique. It's sui generis. It was created precisely and expressly to be the seat of the federal government. It would take an amendment to the Constitution, he says, starting with a two-thirds vote in both chambers of Congress. That's hard to imagine in today's political climate. Still, D.C. statehood activists are pinning their hopes on this November. They say if Democrats win Congress and the White House, there's a real chance. Here's activist Jamal Holtz again. We have to be assertive to ensure that our voices are not sidelined. I mean, we saw this two years ago, people fighting for much-needed legislation across the country that related to voter suppression. And D.C. statehood was left out of the conversation in many instances. Fifty years ago, Washington won home rule after D.C. rights got swept up in the momentum of the civil rights movement. Activists say now D.C. statehood will only happen if it's part of a national fight for voting rights. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Fenston. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report continues its look at so-called news deserts in Super Tuesday states. Today, they visit a news desert less than an hour's drive away from the center of American politics. Highs in the mid-30s today, but the wind will make it feel much colder, and skies may grow overcast into the afternoon. It'll clear up tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s, then a sunny Friday tomorrow in the mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. On Beacon Hill, the House voted to approve a measure that would make the state more competitive for federal funds. It's in favor of using interest on the state's rainy day fund to match federal grant dollars. The Senate and governor are also in favor of the proposal. The head of the Boston Beer Company plans to step down. Dave Berwick will retire at the end of March after five years leading the company. His retirement comes as the company reports an $18 million loss from last year. And a new beer hall is coming to Medford this year. Officials tell Mass Live the Great American Beer Hall is set to open in late summer or early fall. They say the hall is part of the redevelopment of the Mystic Avenue corridor. The hall will also have food trucks and an in-house restaurant. It's 844.
I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Many gamers are leaping for joy this leap day. Come on, I had to make that joke today. That's because Final Fantasy VII Rebirth is finally out. It's the second title in a trilogy remaking a 1997 game that became a global phenomenon. And while we live in a world full of remakes, Sony is banking that the game will not only capture the old magic, but new consumer dollars too. NPR's James Mastromarino reports. Final Fantasy VII Rebirth doesn't take long to introduce you to its grand open world. Just look at it all. It's so green. Like the 1997 game it's based on, it's about ragtag heroes fighting against an evil power company and a maniacal killer, Sephiroth. I'm waiting. Yoshinori Kitase produced the original Final Fantasy VII in 1997. Here he is speaking through an interpreter. We've taken this widely recognized narrative and reconstructed it as a new story that reflects the destiny of the characters. I remember people just like clamoring to import it and get their hands on it. That's Rebecca Valentine, senior reporter for the gaming website IGN. She says the game was far more visually striking than its competitors. Everybody was moving about in like full blocky polygonal glory. And now, nearly 30 years later, that technological innovation has reached its apex with graphics that could rival a Hollywood movie. All right, let's get this show on the road, people. Rebirth director Naoki Hamaguchi feels like the new game's updated animation gives the creators a chance to do what they always intended to do. Here he is, also speaking through an interpreter. Things like the emotions of the characters, down to the finer details of the worldview, which couldn't be noticed in the original work, are now depicted in great detail within this new title. That detail heightens the drama of the game's opening flashback scene. You killed my mom, my village, my home! I'll warn you now that I'm going to spoil something from the original 1997 game, which involves a famous character death. Here's producer Yoshinori Kitase. The biggest theme for us going from the original to Rebirth was deciding what kind of fate awaits Aerith. Aerith's one of the game's beloved playable characters. Her death shocked people in 1997. And Rebirth's makers are playing up the drama of what could await her in this game. 
Rebirth's also coming out at a shaky time for PlayStation's bottom line. Owner Sony just cut hundreds of gaming jobs. They kind of need to hit a home run with this one. And I, I, I mean, I've seen the reviews come out and it seems like they probably have. Again, IGN reporter Rebecca Valentine. Everybody's remaking games. But, she says, no one's quite remaking them like the developers of Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. They're sort of playing with the idea of what a remake actually is. And I think there's some people who are a little worried about that, who, you know, want it to be completely faithful and don't want things to change or don't want to question whether they can change. But I don't know. I think it's good to ask those questions. Rebirth director Naoki Hamaguchi says that he hopes this new version of the game will carry on a legacy to last the next three decades. James Master Marino, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll tell us about Russian President Vladimir Putin's annual address and the latest from Gaza, where witnesses say Israeli forces fired on a crowd waiting for humanitarian aid. It's 849. WBUR supporters include Thought Forms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting Nens's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. Kids in the Middle East without access to preschool have been tuning into a remote learning program from Sesame Workshop with surprising results. We'll talk about it on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Legacy is a concrete expression of the things that you care the most about. John and Margot Davis are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can, too, at WBUR.org legacy. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The Supreme Court is set to decide if former President Donald Trump is immune from prosecution on charges he interfered with the 2020 election. Longtime Senator Mitch McConnell says he's stepping down as Senate Minority Leader in November. And Idaho officials are considering next steps after failing to carry out a lethal injection last night. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Windy mid-30s and increasingly overcast today. It falls to the mid-20s tonight and will be mostly clear. Tomorrow, sunny and mid-40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston. Democracy in a desert near D.C. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. The Name Your Price tool provides a range of coverage options. Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And by the podcast Ripple, a new investigative podcast from Western Sound and APM Studios. Listen now to Ripple. Hello, I'm David Brancaccio. I've been traveling to what are called news deserts in Super Tuesday states to hear about the business models that are failing or informing voters as they go to the polls on Tuesday. 
Today, voices from a desert only an hour's drive from the center of American politics. It is this newspaper's desire to print all of the news throughout King George County. And to a paper end, called the King George News. For your convenience, we have secured correspondence in every section of the county whose names are Not in this hot article. off the presses, but yellowed in a museum. It's from June 1948. Renee Parker, I'm uh, currently the president of the King George Historical Society. That vintage paper bit the dust decades ago. The last local paper published in this county was a different one called the King George Journal. Joel Davis was the final editor and publisher who valiantly kept things going for about a year till the final edition in 2017. When I first got the job, three of the largest advertisers called within a month and, you know, pulled their advertising. And I asked why, and they said, well, you know, it's free on Facebook. Can you beat free? Well, obviously not. Again, Renee Parker at the Historical Society, who once ran for county supervisor. Unfortunately, there are, you know, whatever percent of the population will get whatever they need off Facebook. So they're reading whatever, you know, somebody's hoping that they'll believe because they believe it, um, which can be good and can be bad. Uh, We see a lot of that in our local elections. The Freelance Star newspaper, published a half hour away in Fredericksburg, does have an ace reporter named Kathy Dyson, who gets over here when she can. It's owned by Lee Enterprises, which has papers in 25 states, and its staff, like so many newspapers around the country, given low ad revenue, is much reduced nowadays. Here's King George resident Lynn Pardee. I do family law. I work with children mostly, and um, I work down in Montrose. Half hour away. And they have papers down there. I can read and know what the kids are doing at the high school. I can read what's going on locally in their government. My name's Kara Gonzalez. I recently finished my four-year term on the local county school board. A lot of reporters doing sustained coverage. What was your experience in terms of news media interest? I'm going to say none, but I'd have to think about whether or not that's accurate. So you mentioned the Freelance Star, the Fredericksburg paper. Um, I'm trying to think. We probably made a couple, maybe an article or two in there, maybe. Well, my name is Ed Jones. I spent the first 18 years of my life living on the Navy base, which is the largest employer in King George County. That's archive sound since the weekend we visited. Crews were not firing their tests down the Potomac from Naval Surface Warfare Center Dahlgren. From the time I was in high school to almost 50 years later, I worked at the Freelance Star newspaper in Fredericksburg. I had just about every position at that paper you can think of, from film critic to uh, editorial page editor to editor. It's ironic that the county is larger than it's ever been, more complex than it's ever been, and yet the news resources are depleted. Even with smartphones full of information. It has to be credible information. So how do you determine whether it's credible? Well, back in the day, if you trusted your local newspaper, they're not trying to throw me a curveball. Some newsstands here display the Northern Neck Sentinel, a free publication from two counties over. The online edition we saw had headlines comparing, quote, leftist violence to 1930s Germany and a headline, illegal aliens invade region. There was an item of local news from King George about county supervisors getting sworn in.
This evolving media landscape places burdens on residents. My name is Adam Simonoff, concerned citizen, live in King George, Virginia. Since 1983, I'm a retired engineer. I used to do my thing for the Navy. Force protection basically teaches us not to talk too much about it. You have a theory that um, people create their own news deserts? Yeah, I do. I think that if you don't want to look at mainstream media and then compare it to other media and you only want to look at something that you agree with, you've now blocked yourself off and you've created your own news desert because you're not checking. You're going to listen to perhaps what a politician tells you and you're not going to listen to what a news reporter tells you. Tomorrow, a publisher who had to pull the plug on the local newspaper he founded. All of our Democracy in the Desert stories go to Marketplace.org. There's news this morning. The inflation gauge the Fed likes ticked down for January, with personal consumption expenditures rising 2.4 percent in a year, excluding food and fuel. Stocks S&P futures have turned up three-tenths percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity knows who has the best relationship with the right startup. Affinity.co slash marketplace. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Securities regulators are reportedly investigating whether OpenAI, the ChatGPT artificial intelligence company, misled investors ahead of the brief ouster of the boss, Sam Altman. This according to Wall Street Journal reporting. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. OpenAI's previous board of directors suddenly fired Sam Altman in November and said he was, quote, not consistently candid in his communications. The ouster lasted less than two weeks. Altman returned with a new board. But the incident apparently got the attention of the Securities and Exchange Commission. The Wall Street Journal says the agency is looking into Altman's internal communications at the company. A civil probe by the SEC will be the latest in a growing list of headaches for OpenAI. It's facing lawsuits from media companies over the use of their content to train ChatGPT and competition inquiries over its partnership with Microsoft. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. And stock in Weight Watchers, WW International, is down 26% in pre-market trading now after Oprah Winfrey announced she's leaving the board. The company says, among other things, this removes a perceived conflict of interest after Winfrey confirmed she's using a weight loss medication. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. It'll only be in the mid-30s today, and gusty winds will make it feel much colder. Clouds will move in throughout the day. Tonight's skies clear, and it falls to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny skies and mid-40s. It's 29 degrees in Boston, and the BBC NewsHour is coming up next. Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.